0: Well, we are in Jeremiah chapter 9, and I know your bulletin says we'll be going through verses 12 through 26, but we're going to be going through verses 12 through 24, because I made a last-minute adjustment, and just cut those verses off, so we'll pick them up next week. But if you will turn there, prophet Jeremiah, and while you're turning, let me uh, welcome Leah Boltzmann. She met with the elders this week, was received into membership of the church, so everybody welcome her, and so that's part of the family, and that's good that he can understand this, to whom is the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it, why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through, and the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them till I have consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined. We are utterly shamed because we have left the land because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women. The word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows, has entered our palaces. Cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares, speak. Thus declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. As always, we need it. We need to know that everything that we need for steadfast love, justice, and righteousness comes from the mouth of the Lord. We need to know that when your word is opened before us, it is the word of the Lord. It speaks to us in our self-righteousness. It speaks to us when we look on others with contempt. Thank you that Jeremiah speaks to us so clearly. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak to us through your word this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Nearly two years ago, The Guardian, a newspaper in Great Britain, published an article uh, titled, Sex Doesn't Sell Anymore, Activism Does. And while this sounds like it should be a good thing, It's actually aimed at a very profitable humility. It was written in February of 2017, so not quite two years ago. And the context was that these corporate decisions were being made coming immediately after one of the immigration bans that was announced by the Trump administration. And so this writer notes, he says, three days ago I hadn't heard of Lyft. Not until I was greeted on Monday morning by a write-on colleague demanding to know if I deleted my Uber app and replaced it with the Lyft app. On Saturday, hashtag delete Uber had been trending after many believed it undermined a taxi strike at New York's JFK Airport, which was protesting the new immigration ban. By Sunday, with swift marketing prowess, Lyft's CEO tweeted the company was donating a million dollars to the ACLU, which led to Lyft's downloads surpassing Ubers for the first time. They used to say sex sells, now evidently it's activism. Lyft wasn't the only company flaunting their good deeds. In reaction to the immigration ban, the CEO of Starbucks wrote an open letter to the chain staff committing to hiring 10,000 refugees and Airbnb tweeted that it was providing free accommodations to anyone not allowed in the US. Even Uber, presumably in a bid to outdo Lyft, created a $3 million fund to help drivers affected by the ban. Companies were trying to outdo one another with major acts of generosity, but there is a catch. They'll do good only as long as they can make sure their customers know about it. There's no room for humility when a brand does a good deed. It's difficult to separate the fact that while these brands are trying to showcase their social responsibility, ultimately they're helping these people, they're helping refugees, because it helps sell lattes and cheap accommodations. Will Fowler, who's a creative director for the Headspace Advertising Agency, a great name anyway he wrote brands are allowing people to pat themselves on the back without them personally having to sacrifice anything and that's probably true the writer of this article says "Uh, it is true because I swapped one taxi app for another taxi app and I felt incredibly smug we're all feeling the need to right the wrongs of today's world as long as we don't have to actually sacrifice anything. If a brand can allow me to carry on living exactly as I was before and fuel my social conscience, then they can have my pocket money. Business is business, these brands aren't being good from the bottom of their hearts. They're run by smart people who know that being good sells coffee and taxi rides. Well. The Bible actually has a name for that kind of behavior, and it's called self-righteousness. And it involves some sort of, look at me, aren't I being good? Don't you like me even more now? Of course you do. And for the most part, we don't like self-righteousness in you. Self-righteousness in me is just fine. After all, I'm just telling it like it is. You know, I'm just being straight with you. It's fine. In you, not so much. In me, it's okay. And it all is somewhat arrogant and obnoxious. And Jeremiah could tell you all about it. Because he lives among the people who have mastered self-righteousness. Even though they're not actually righteous at all. They say they're good, but they're not. They say they're wise, but they're not. They say they're strong, but they're not. They say they're faithful, but they're not. And so through Jeremiah, God tells the people that he's sending them to school to rediscover humility and learn what true righteousness looks like. And he's going to start by sending them through the school of bitterness. The school of bitterness, verses 12 through 16. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the first two points because the key verses are really in the third point. And we'll spend most of our time there. And as I said, I already cut off the last two verses, which I'll pick up next week. But for now, let's look at these verses quickly, starting at verse 12. Who is the man so wise he can understand this? To whom is the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. So let me ask, have you ever heard the phrase, the wormwood and the gall? How many have heard that phrase, the wormwood and the gall? Eh, maybe a third to half of you, probably more of you have, because uh, most people know that phrase from the hymn, all hail the power of Jesus' name. And we've sung that hymn, so you've probably heard it. It actually comes from the King James translation of these verses. To hear it's rendered, I will feed this people with bitter food, wormwood, and poisonous drink, gall. Poisonous water to drink. Jeremiah uses it again in the book of Lamentations. and He's actually borrowing it from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 29. Jeremiah actually borrows a lot from Deuteronomy. And it says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord, Our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations, beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And that's what wormwood and gall means. That's the way it's used. It means bitterness. It's sort of used as a a metaphor for bitterness. And when God and his word are forsaken, as the Israelites have done, God says, I'm going to feed them with Bitterness. Now, he's already told them, as we learned last week, their future is filled with exile and death. So not only is there exile and death, but you're going to be bitter about it. Not sure that's actually a surprise. But he tells them Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The temple will be leveled. And God sort of anticipates their questions. End of verse 12, why is the land ruined and laid waste? And God answers his own rhetorical question, Because he sort of gives us this equation. That apostasy, verse 13, plus idolatry, verse 14, equals or leads to great bitterness, verse 15, and the promised judgment of exile and death, verse 16. So um, apostasy and idolatry equals bitterness and exile. He lays that equation out before him in these verses. And so now that they know they're going to be overwhelmed with bitterness, he graduates them to the next school, which is the school of sadness. The school of sadness, verses 17 to 22. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women to come. That's not mourning as in this morning, that's mourning as in grieving. Send for the skillful women to come. These are women skilled in mourning, wailing, grieving. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water, for a sound of wailing is heard from Zion, how we are ruined. We are utterly shamed because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive a word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak thus, declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung on an open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. This chapter began, chapter 9 began, verse 1, with the tears of Jeremiah. And it sort of peaked with the weeping of God himself in verse 10. But God tells us he doesn't weep alone. The scale of this tragedy calls for an army of wailers, wailing women, mourning women. Israel, like many uh, traditional societies, had professional grievers. If you couldn't get enough people to come to the funeral your family was having, you would hire people to come And mourn, so it looked like there's more people mourning uh, for you. It's not common in our society, but it's still common in many uh, parts of the world. And certainly was in Israel. So they're professional grievers, so to speak. These women were skillful, verse 17. And they provided the songs of lament and all the sort of the culturally expected uh, things to accompany mourning, to honor the dead and support the bereaved. And God's saying, your finest hour has come. Send for them, let the wailing and weeping fill the air for the ruin of Zion, verse 19. But then God talks to those women, the women who've been hired as the mourners and grievers to come in and lead us in lament. And he speaks to them and he says, if you have daughters, teach them to wail too because this grief is gonna last into the next generation. The childhood songs of fun and joy are gonna be silenced by the mounting death toll in a city that's gonna be besieged and captured with appalling violence at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar's approaching armies. And the prophet is essentially giving us lyrics for a funeral dirge. His song for the dead sends shivers up and down our spines. Like a passage from a Stephen King novel. Verse 21. For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palace. This is death personified. According to Jeremiah, death is the prowler who comes by night. The stalker who peeks in the window. The intruder who climbs into the house to commit murder. Death is the stealthy assassin. Who penetrates the defenses and slips into the fortified palace. Death is personified, climbing through windows, smashing down hiding places, slaying the children at home in the streets, in the fields, mercilessly uh, slaughtering, splattering the dead everywhere, reaping like a harvester who cuts down the grain and never picks it up. Even grabbing kids off the playground, there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Death is reaping the awful harvest that these people have sown because they have forsaken God. And I think it's interesting the last word and this is not uncommon but it seems the last word goes to the women. And it's one of lament. For if there's another why it's why is it that the it's the women who suffer the most for the sins of humanity. I mean war is cruel. And it's cruel not only to those who become casualties, but also to those who are left behind to grieve their loss. And more often than not, those are women, wives, mothers, daughters. And that scene is reenacted over and over again on the news and has been most of my life. And you see pictures of women dressed in black standing beside open graves, lifting clenching hands to heaven, clutching a folded flag, to their breasts. You may have been there, you may have seen that. What else can they do when the men they love lie dead before them? Why must women always bear an unequal share of the world's sorrow? Why must they teach their own daughters to lament? To use biblical language, why must Rachel grieve over her departed children? Common theme using Rachel from the Old Testament. Why must Mary weep at the cross? And so we're brought to this point in Jeremiah. And then you wonder, like, what happened? Because it takes this dramatic turn. There's a change. And while it seems utterly out of place, God moves them from the schools of bitterness and sadness. To the school of boasting. And it doesn't seem to fit. Verse 23 and 24, the school of boasting. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. It's all men boasting, just notice that. But let him who boasts, boast about this... That he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So he's telling them that this disaster that's coming, this exile, the Babylonian armies that are approaching, it's not going to be averted or held off by any human ability. Those who claim to be wise in Israel's governing and religious elites, um, they've already been exposed as frauds. The strong of Jerusalem's military will be unable to defend Judah, will eventually become food for scavengers. The rich have gained their wealth through greed and manipulation. And when they're the subject of boasting, wisdom becomes pride and folly. Strength becomes power and violence. Riches become idolatrous greed. And no such flawed wisdom, strength, or riches can withstand the power of God's judgment. They had boasted in all of these things and they made a profoundly wrong choice. So, what choice should they have made? What choice is still open to those who survive? They could at last choose to do what these people refused to do to understand and know the Lord. And in knowing Him, to live according to His character not according to their own foolish boasting. And the lesson's clear. Those who know what God delights in should go and do those things. We're told, verse 24, that doing those things mean that we're supposed to be people uh, who together corporately practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now we're following this long chapter It's filled with tragedy and tears and death and mourning. How can we speak of God's steadfast love? Justice and righteousness we can kind of understand because the punishment on unrepentant sin has been explained over and over again in Jeremiah, but steadfast love. now If you stop and think about it, it's actually not that hard a question because if we excel in practicing justice and righteousness, then we're liable to become what? Self-righteous. Particularly for us, self-righteous Pharisees. We're doing all the right stuff. We understand this. This is why the Pharisees were created. Because after they got back from exile, they're like, we never want to let that happen again. So we're going to set aside these guys to make sure we do everything right. Because we don't want another exile And over time, that became the Pharisees. And they specialized in doing everything right. Of course, we've read that before. It comes to us in Luke 18, a well-known passage where it says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. But beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus and Jeremiah are kind of on the same wavelength here. I don't know how many of you have heard of Thomas... Brooks, he was a 17th century Puritan. One of the great writers, actually, one of the easier Puritans to read. Um, Most of them, easy is not the word you would use. But he wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. They had longer book titles back then. And one of the parts of the book that I think always surprises me is he says all classes of human beings get their self esteem by boasting about themselves and showing contempt to other classes of human beings, which is exactly what Jesus said in Luke 18. And he says, just like the Pharisee, that's how we get our self-esteem. And so he goes on and looks at the different classes of people, the rich, the middle class, the poor. And it's very interesting. He takes the poor and says, I know a lot of poor people. And this is sort of put in more modern English and not 17th century English. He says, I know a lot of poor people, and they show contempt towards the rich and the middle class because of their suffering. They say, the system has abused me. I've been trampled upon. These people up there think they got there because of their hard work, but I know it was largely luck. As a result of that, often the poor will say, the system has abused me, so I don't mind ripping people off. And then you go to the middle class, and he says, the middle class look down on the poor because they think, the only reason I have my lifestyle is because I've worked very hard, period. But they, too, despise the rich. They really got lucky. The poor say the middle class got lucky. The middle class say it was the rich who got lucky, and the rich look down on everybody. They say, you weren't as smart as I was, or you didn't know how to make investments like I did. Remember, this is 17th century Britain. Any resemblance today is purely coincidental. And Thomas Brooks says the way everybody gets self-esteem is they boast by looking down on or showing contempt towards other people. But when the gospel of grace hits you, when the knowledge of how lost you were and how costly the payment was actually hits home with you, he says it's traumatic because it takes that away. It takes away boasting. It takes away self-righteousness. Now there's never been a place, I think, that has depicted this in a more masterful or artistic way than in Victor Hugo's book, Les Miserables. Some of you know the story. More of you know the movie than know the Broadway show than know the book. But we're dealing with the book today not going to sing. But in the story, the main character is named Jean Valjean. And he's put into prison somewhat unjustly. And he's actually thrown, it was a hellhole version of prison. And he's there for years. And when he's down there, he gets hardened. And he says, because of all of this unjust suffering, you know, I've been harmed, I've been hurt, I've been treated uh, uh, unjustly. And he starts to feel superior to everyone else around. And when he eventually gets out, he's become a real criminal. He says, the system abused me, now I'm going to take it out and abuse on everyone else, I'm going to abuse everyone else. And some of you know how the story goes. At one point, he's taken in the house of a Catholic bishop. And the Catholic bishop is radically hospitable to him. And when the bishop goes to bed, Jean Valjean steals his silverware and runs, and the police catch him, and they bring him back to the bishop and say, we caught a thief. And the bishop looks at him into Jean Valjean's amazement, and Grace is always amazing. The bishop says to the police, oh no, no. I gave him the silverware, and here he grabs two valuable candlesticks, silver candlesticks, and walks over and says, you forgot the candlesticks. I gave you those too. And the police are like, we could have sworn we just caught a thief. It's like, oh, no, no. Thank you, officers, for your effort. But you're dismissed. I gave all these things to him. They are his. And the police leave. And Jean Valjean is left standing there with this bag of stuff that he had stolen and these two silver candlesticks. And the bishop says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. It is your soul I have bought from you. I withdraw it from your black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Now, you may have seen this on Broadway or in the movies. Really, the only way to get the full scope of it and the wisdom of Victor Hugo is from the book because he takes the entire next chapter to talk about this incredible struggle that Jean Valjean has over the trauma of grace. And the text says something like this. There came over him a strange emotion opposed to the hardness that he had acquired during 20 years in prison. He perceived with dismay that the frightful calm which the injustice of his misfortune had conferred upon him was giving way. He was conscious that this pardon, this celestial kindness was the greatest assault and most formidable attack he had ever addressed. You know what he's talking about? Victor Hugo's brilliant here. He's talking about self righteousness. See, John Valjean wants to say, I've suffered. Nobody's been nice to me. Therefore, I can do what I want and get away with what I want. And he's boasting in his suffering. Everybody boasts. I'm a good father, I'm a good mother. Those people aren't. I'm a hard worker. Those people aren't. I'm this. Those people aren't. I'm on the right side of the political spectrum. Those people are the bad ones. We boast. We despise. We look down. Just like Jean Valjean, who was self-righteous. His unjust suffering gave him a frightful calm as he stole from people. It gave him a hard heart about everything. And this grace that he now experienced is a formidable challenge because it's humbling him. If he accepted the grace, if he accepted himself as a sinner who needed grace, he know that if he yielded to that grace, he'd have to renounce all the hatred which the actions of other men had filled his soul with for more than 20 years. And you know what happened? They didn't put this in the movie. The chapter ends with the mailman. And it's three in the morning. And he's delivering the mail at three in the morning. And he goes to the bishop's neighborhood to deliver the mail. And he sees this strange figure kneeling in prayer in front of the bishop's house. And one of the great themes of the Bible comes to excuse me, comes to us from Jeremiah 9... Verses 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. In fact, most commentators will say your responsive reading this morning from 1 Corinthians is Paul's exposition of Jeremiah 9. And in Romans, after Paul's been talking about justification by faith alone and justification by free grace and costly grace, he says at the end of Romans 3, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. By the law of faith. When grace comes to you, it gives you that kind of humility. It gives you that kind of joy. But first, it traumatizes you. Because it says, no More boasting. We like boasting. We want to be self-righteous. Everybody has some form of self-righteousness. It starts early. Last year, one of my grandkids, no names, came home from preschool and told mom, Chloe was on red all day today. They have this sort of green, yellow, red behavior chart. At preschool. But I was on green. Preschool self-righteousness, right? You don't have to teach this stuff. It just comes naturally. Everybody struggles with self-righteousness. Even those of you who hate self-righteous people. Why? Because you feel better than them. I don't denounce people. I'm not bigoted. I'm not narrow-minded. I'm not always telling everybody they're wrong. I'm not like them. And grace shows up and says, oh, yes, you are. You're just like them. And it's time to give it up. And it takes you down and builds you up at the same time. And here's how everybody in the world, until the grace of God comes, gets their self-image by looking down on somebody else. And when the gospel comes, you finally start looking up at somebody. And you know who you look up to? There's only one man in the history of the world, because of the life he lived, could have boasted. There's only one who could have gone before God and said, look at my life. Look at what I've achieved. Look at what I've done. Give me what I ask. Give me the world. Only Jesus could have done that. He's the only person who could have boasted, who lived a perfect life, Life And yet, what is it that we read about Jesus? Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did he do that? Why is the one person who could have boasted humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death? Here's why the ultimate somebody became nobody. And the one person in the history of the world who deserved to have God say, Well done, good and faithful servant, in his heart on the cross, heard God say, Depart from me, you cursed and everlasting punishment. And he did it so we who deserve to have God say to us on the last day, Depart from me, actually here in Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. That's traumatic. But it brings you peace. And if you know the grace of God, it's the end of suspicion. It's the end of accusation. It's the end of making sure nobody's getting ahead of you. It's the end of always being anxious that you're not somehow living up. It's the end of always comparing yourself to other people. It's the end of boasting. It's the end of self-righteousness. It's the end of all of that. You're saved by grace. But it is a formidable challenge because it will humble you. And you just might find yourself kneeling in prayer at three in the morning. Think about that, you need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. And as always, open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess to you that we are self-righteous far more than we care to admit. We would rather be right than humble. We would rather trust our own goodness than trust in your grace. Give us a greater desire to know you to know your steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. Forgive us for being Pharisees who are quick to look down on others. And so work in each of us this year as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees and hear what he hears. Teach us to respond with greater faith, a renewed confidence in your word, an ever-increasing trust in the free grace that humbles our hearts. And by doing that, draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Receive the Lord's blessing from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, part of our responsive reading this morning. For consider your calling. wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. God bless you. We'll see you next week.